Father, what an amazing song. Our Redeemer's love. Lord, in a world full of hatred and hostility, full of judgment and condemnation, what a comforting reality for us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ that there is the love of God found in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that this morning would be a a morning where those who do not know you as Father through faith in Christ, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that today would be the day where they would find a God of no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Lord, thank you for the great salvation that we get to even celebrate this morning. That some 2,000 years ago or so, our great Savior and His humanity entered Jerusalem in a very anticlimactic way, yes, but it is and it was a triumphal entry because He entered in fulfillment of Your promises to die for sinners like us on the cross and to rise from the dead conquering sin and death. Lord, thank You for that great reality. Today we celebrate that. Father, I pray this morning as many of us or all of us come in with baggage from our week, maybe even from this morning, distractions that we have, worries and anxieties that we carry into corporate worship. Lord, I pray that today would be a day where we can remove those distractions from our minds and hear what you would have to say to us through the preaching and ministry of your word. Father, I do pray that we would be doers of your word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. Open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your word this morning. And Lord, may everything that we do, our prayers, our fellowship, our encouragement to one another, our interaction with one another, the preaching and application of your word, singing, prayer, reading of scripture, that all of those things would be done for your glory out of a heart of authentic, genuine devotion to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We are back in the gospel of Mark this morning after a few weeks of not being in this great gospel. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word, please do so. Please stand with me in reverence for the word of God. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, what day of the year is more important than the 4th of July, more important than New Year's or Christmas, more important than Mother's or Father's Day. Yes, even more important 
And then your spouse's birthday. Oh, them's fighting words now, Pastor. What day of the year is more important than any of those days or any other days that you could possibly think of? Anybody know the answer? Resurrection Sunday, right? Resurrection Day is next week. A week from today is the day where we celebrate our risen, exalted Christ. And the fact that we have hope because of the fact that He rose from the dead, that for those who have repented of their sins and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will one day rise from the dead. Amen? That is so, so huge for us. Because no matter what is going on in our world, no matter how much confusion, how much hostility, how much hatred, do you understand, friends and brethren, that if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because of Jesus' resurrection, one day you will rise from the dead again, no matter what is going on in our world. Next week we celebrate the hope of the resurrection found in Jesus Christ alone. But even before next Sunday... There is this wonderful week leading up to Resurrection Sunday. Anybody know what that week is called? Passion Week. Passion Week is a very important week for us as Christians. And so to help us um, remember each day of the week as we see the Gospels, I want you to know that beginning with today, if you look in your churchwide email, if you're on the churchwide email group or on our Facebook page, you're going to notice that there is a, a short article sent out today and every day this week for you on the events that take place every single day of the week of Passion Week. Why do we do this? We want you to be able to focus on and anticipate the resurrection of our Lord next Sunday. We want you to be able, to, with your family, to, to be mutually encouraged to use that as an opportunity to maybe evangelize your kids or people that you don't know, maybe to send them that. We want you to use that to be prayerful before the Lord and anticipating your heart what happens next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. So just be looking out, beginning with today, for that churchwide email with just a, a small, it's not a, a dissertation, I promise. We try to keep these very brief these readings, just outlining the events, the specific events of every single day of Passion Week. Because this is a very important week. In fact, even in the Gospel of Mark, if you remember, we've spoken so much about the fact that Mark devotes six chapters of his Gospel to this last week of the Lord's life. And if you survey the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Gospel of John, Close to 42%, almost half of the narrative of those four Gospels focuses attention specifically on Passion Week, the last week of our Lord's life. That's how important Passion Week is. And it all begins with Palm Sunday, which we celebrate today. On this particular Sunday, some 2,000 or so years ago, our Lord Jesus finally enters the city of Jerusalem in what is known as the triumphal entry. And many people have said, well, how can we call it triumphal entry? I mean, it was so anticlimactic in the way that he came into Jerusalem. It was triumph, a triumphal entry because Jesus, in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, entered the city humble, seated on a donkey, in order to do what for sinners? 
to die for sinners on the cross. Amen? This is our hope. So it was a triumphal entry. And the people were crying out, we saw. In Mark chapter 11, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Essentially, that was a, a, a cry of anticipation for deliverance. Literally, Lord, save us now, is what they were crying out. It's right after that then, that Jesus goes straight to the temple, takes a brief peek at the activity in the temple, and then he departs to his headquarters in Bethany, to some two miles away, to the home of Mary and Martha, and he goes to sleep. And then on Monday morning, if you remember, on his way back to the temple, he curses a fig tree, symbolic of his judgment upon Israel. Matthew tells us that at once the tree withered. And then Jesus goes into the temple, cleanses the temple in a great act of zeal, and takes aggressive action against those who are, who are corrupting the temple. The temple had become a circus of sorts instead of a center for worship. And so after monitoring that for a while, Jesus then goes back to Bethany with his disciples on Monday night and he lays his head to rest at the home of Mary and Martha in Bethany. Tuesday morning, on their way back to the temple, the disciples see the dead fig tree and Jesus teaches them on the importance of faith and prayer. Still on Tuesday, as soon as Jesus goes right back into the temple, there, there are continual confrontations from the religious leaders, problem after problem, all centered, these interrogations by the religious leaders, on this issue of authority. Mark eleven twenty eight says that the religious leaders were asking, by what authority do you do these things? Jesus, not once, but multiple times, puts them in their place, as he teaches parables that all point to God's judgment upon them. This is all on Tuesday of Passion Week. Conflict after conflict. Interrogation after interrogation. Characterizes these last days of our Lord's life. And our passage this morning, beloved, is yet another conflict. Another interrogation on the part of the religious leaders. Now this confrontation in particular, we should be especially thankful for given what we've been navigating the last year or so especially. The theme, the ever-present challenge of God and government before us. Boy, it's been a tough go this past year, hasn't it? Just wrestling with what our responsibilities are before God and government. There has been so much confusion, so much division, so much arguing and argumentation not only outside of the Christian circles, but also amongst Christians, about our responsibilities before God and government in the midst of everything that's been going on the past year or so. Well, today, as we look at this passage, I think our Lord Jesus really helps us navigate the tension between obedience to God and submission to government. There's not a person that I've met this past year, leaders, pastors, lay people, even non-Christians. There's not a person who I've met this past year who hasn't in some way, shape, or form experienced the tension of God and government and what our responsibilities are as citizens of this country, and more importantly, as Christians who put our faith in Jesus Christ. And so I think as we walk through these five segments here, these five segments in this text, our Lord is going to help us navigate this tension. Okay, let's look at our text together. Consider first the evil scheme. The evil scheme. 
verse 13, if you notice, says, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. Here is yet another trap, another scheme by Jesus' enemies. These individuals come in a very cunning way. And what most likely what had happened at some point is that the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, the Supreme Court, if you will, of the Jews, had privately conspired to send these two groups to attempt to get Jesus into trouble now. The Herodians and the Pharisees. And what you need to understand is that these two groups couldn't be more different from one another. On the one hand, you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the right-wing religious group. Not Christian, but religious. The hardline conservatives. They are strong Jewish nationalists who are opposed to Rome and Roman control over them. And they hate and reject Jesus, don't they? Again and again, we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, these guys are always on the forefront of these Pharisees of attacking Jesus, of trying to get him stuck in something so that they might accuse him and get him killed ultimately. This is the Pharisees. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have the Herodians. And they are a left-wing political group. They are the chief supporters of the Herodian family who is a sellout family to the Roman government. And in a sense, the Herodians have sold their souls to collaborate with Rome since Rome is the source of Herod's power. And so these guys are going to do anything, anything that the Romans ask them to do, in order to get the favor for the Herodian family. And they reject Jesus and they hate Jesus. They are hostile toward him. What about their view of taxes, these two groups? The Pharisees, because they were Jewish nationalists, are all against Roman taxes because to the Pharisees, taxes are symbolic to them of Roman domination, of Roman oppression. So they hate taxes. By contrast, the Herodians are fully supportive of Roman taxation. They'll do whatever Rome says in order to procure Roman support again for the Herodian dynasty. They couldn't be more different, and yet, here they are, take note, locking arms to attack our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It shows you the level of their hatred toward Jesus. And yet, and then look at verse 1. What is the goal of their evil, wicked scheme? Verse 1 tells us that they come in order to what? trap him in a statement like catching a fish in a net or setting a trap for a wild animal they come to trap jesus in a statement to get jesus to say something to say a word to ensnare himself so that they could indict and kill him notice second not only is there an evil scheme in the works here but secondly there is the shameless flattery There is this shameless flattery in verse 14. Notice, they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. For you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Boy, these guys are kiss-ups, aren't they? First, notice that they flatter him with a title of respect. Teacher or rabbi, that was a title of respect. We respect you. 
We want to sit under your feet to learn from you. We appreciate what, what you would have to say. Notice that they also flatter him with their words, not just a title, but their words, don't they? You are truthful and defer to no one. In other words, you tell it like it is, man. You are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. The sense is, you don't look upon someone's face with favor. You don't look upon someone's face with favor. It was a way of saying you're no respecter of men. Regardless of whether they are poor or rich or a political persuasion, you say it like it is. You call a spade a spade. You don't mince words. You don't pull punches. You're only concerned rabbi, teacher, with whatever God says. Oh, how sweet these guys are. What a bunch of nice guys, right? You must really, really like Jesus. Far from it. These guys are smooth talkers, aren't they? Like the adulterous woman in Proverbs 7, 5, who flatters with her words, who is smooth with her words. Proverbs 5, 3, the lips of an adulterous drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. That type of flattery it's not only true of the adulterous woman, these wicked, evil men resemble this woman. They are sweet talkers who are using their words deceptively to manipulate Jesus, to candy coat their true intentions and motivations, to entrap him in something so that they might get him killed. We've seen so much of this in politics this past year, haven't we? This type of flattery. Now that's before, that's after the primaries, the flattery. Because what happens during the primaries? Do you remember? You have all manner of, of nastiness. All manner of classless bashing. But as soon as someone is chosen to represent their party, what happens? All is forgiven. We love one another. I didn't really mean that he was a bad guy. I didn't really mean that. I didn't really mean that, that he was a racist. Oh, no. I didn't really mean that he was a, a bad father or that she was a bad mother. All's forgotten after that. And now there's flattery and all type of superficial niceness. We see this type of thing in our world in politics, don't we? This is what these guys are doing here. They're far from nice guys. They are shamelessly flattering him. Why? In order to make him feel safe. This is safe territory why? So that they would butter him up for the kill. That's what they're doing to Jesus. And I think, beloved, there's a lesson for us here as a side note, a side application here. There's a big difference between sinful flattery and loving encouragement, right? There's a big difference between speaking words of encouragement, words of gracious affirmation to one another, and flattery designed to butter others up, manipulate them with our words so that we get what we want. That is not the way of Christ for the believer. Our words to one another must be spoken in truth and in love. And our service must be unto God genuinely from the heart and for the sake of the benefit of others, not for what we can get out of it. So in our words and in our actions, we must never be hypocritical like this. But these individuals are the opposite of that. They're the opposite of genuineness. They are phonies. They are fake. 
On the other hand, think about this. Are their words about Jesus true? Yes or no? Yes. On the other hand, they are absolutely right in everything that they're saying about Jesus as far as the content of his character and of his words. Never has there existed someone wiser than King Jesus. So brilliant, so insightful, so wise, so complete and perfect in understanding and knowledge. Never has there existed someone as great and wise as King Jesus. Amen? Never has there existed someone with greater integrity, perfect integrity than the Lord Jesus Christ, always speaking the truth, never even speaking any percentage point of falsehood. Everything was true. Everything was full of integrity. Oh, I pray and I ask and I do almost every single week, beloved, as we go into the gospel of Mark, that you and I would never get bored of Jesus. Familiarity breeds contempt. For some of us who've been sitting under message after message over years and maybe even decades from various pastors and preachers, hearing about the greatness of Jesus, his redemptive work first and foremost, but also his perfect life of obedience and his wisdom and his power and his understanding, and his insight as he spoke and he interacted with people, and his integrity, and his blamelessness, and his spotlessness, and his holiness. I pray that familiarity wouldn't breed contempt in your heart. Because for so many of these people that we read about in the Gospels, it did. And they didn't believe in Jesus from the heart, even though they saw this Jesus walk before them visibly and physically. And so as we behold Christ on the pages of the Gospel of Mark, He alone deserves all worship, all devotion, and all service. Amen? Now that their evil scheme has been exposed, and we've seen their shameless flattery, let's consider third. The cunning inquiry. The cunning inquiry. With their evil motives and manner of coming having been revealed. Now, here comes their venomous, cunning question. Look at the middle of verse 14. Is it lawful, they ask, to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now, we we all know about taxes these days, right? We're all just chomping at the bits to just get past this time of the year. We don't want to hear any more about taxes. So we understand taxes. And similar to our context here in the U.S., under the Roman Empire, every Jewish male head had to pay a yearly poll tax to the Roman government. It was required of everyone. And it consisted, this yearly poll tax, of one denarius, which was basically a one-day's wage for a common blue-collar worker. Now imagine that. One day's wage is all that you're required to pay for your taxes this year. Not very much, right? Not very much. That would be nice. But for the common Jew, the amount itself wasn't even the issue. That wasn't the issue for them. What bothered them wasn't so much the amount that they were required to pay this poll tax. It was the principle of the matter. Because to the common Jew, the poll tax was symbolic of their oppression, of their subjection under the Roman government, and even of their indirect support for 
Roman government policies. That's what it signified to the Jews. Not only that, but the coin itself was a symbol of Roman pantheism, of the worship of many gods, of the Roman Empire's idolatry, which was so counter to Judaism. On one hand of the coin, you had the image of Tiberius Caesar Augustus with this inscription, son of the divine Augustus. Divine meant that they thought of the emperor past and present as gods in their own right. Which was heresy to the Jews. Heresy. The great mantra of, the, of Judaism was Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. The Lord is one. And to speak of any other God beside the one true God whose personal name is Yahweh is, to, is anathema to the Jew. It was heresy to them. On the other side of the coin was the Latin inscription, Maxim Potus, which meant highest priest. Highest priest. Well, the Jews knew about priests. And you know what? Caesar wasn't one of them. He wasn't one of them. So neither of these titles did the Jews agree with. And so the coin itself, think about it, for the typical Jew was symbolic of Roman oppression, Roman paganism, and Roman idolatry. It was the principle of the whole thing that really bothered the Jews. And let's get back to the actual question, which is far from an honest question, right? Please notice a couple of things about the question, the way that it's posed. First, they repeat it twice, don't they? Twice. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? I would have thought Jesus would have caught the first time, right? They don't have to repeat their question. Why are they doing that? They want to make doubly sure that no one who is listening misses their question. Because they're going to accuse Jesus. No matter how he answers Second, notice that the question is posed as an either-or question, isn't it? There's no in-between. It's a yes or no question. That's the tone of it. If Jesus answers, yes, pay it, what's going to happen? He gets into trouble, not only with the Pharisees. He could care less about that, as we've seen in the Gospels. He'll go ahead with them for the truth in love. But more importantly, with the Jewish crowds, Jesus is going to get into trouble. If he says, yes, pay. Because the Jewish crowds hate the Romans and hate oppression and hate subjugation and they hate the poll tax. So he would lose all support and favor with the Jewish multitudes who just two days before on Sunday were crying out what? Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If Jesus answers, no, don't pay the taxes, what happens? He not only gets in trouble with the Herodians, but more importantly, with the Roman government, and he will be accused of being a rebel insurrectionist and prosecuted as a criminal, as a mutinous kind of man. Belling against the Roman government and encouraging other people to do so. Either way, in other words, from their perspective, the way that they pose their question and they're anticipating Jesus answering it, Jesus loses and they get what they want. Get him killed. 
So even the way that they phrase the question or the questions is strategic and cunning and crafty, isn't it? As a side note, isn't this the danger that we've seen in the last year with blending the things of God with government and politics, beloved? I mean, think about this. These guys know what the lightning issue, lightning rod issue was for the Jews. They know exactly how to get Jesus into trouble. They're not, they're not in this thing to have a helpful discussion with Jesus. Teacher, teach us. Walk us through your mentality and rationale for why you think a certain way about these areas of God and government. Oh, no, 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 no. Question, double question, either or, answer. Pick a side. Pick a side. Either or. I got to tell you, I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. As I studied the tone and the approach of these self-righteous legalists, I couldn't help but to draw a comparison to the tone and approach of so many people, even in the church, to so many issues that we encountered this past year. Either or. No conversation. You're either a racist or you're not a racist. No convo. Answer the question. Yes, no. Either or. You either believe in racism or you don't believe in racism. Either or. No conversation. Pick a side. You either support this politician or this political party or you don't. No conversation. Either or. You either are for vaccinations and you are not a Christian if you are. Or you are against vaccinations and you're a solid, mature believer. No conversation. Either or, pick a side, no conversation. So much of the way that we've dealt with things over this past year has taken this kind of tone. No grace, no believing the best, little conversation, little discussion, little going into the Word of God and the principles of the Word of God. Just pick a side, either or choose. You say, what about black and white issues? Well, to be clear, absolutely make a stand. If the Bible clearly says something is right or wrong, make a stand. Amen? We're not talking about that. Stand firm by what Scripture is explicit about. Chapter and verse. And even by way of principles in some cases. What I'm talking about is wisdom issues that we've encountered. Issues of wisdom where there's freedom and, and latitude to apply the principles that God has given us in a prayerful and thoughtful and unifying way with wisdom given particular life dynamics and situations that are unique to individuals and to family units, right? This past year, we've seen so much of this type of divisive kind of tone that these guys right here take, especially in the area of politics. Pick a side, Jesus, either or. J.C. Ryle writes, listen to this. Never does the cause of Christ suffer so much as when the devil succeeds in bringing churches into collisions and lawsuits with the civil power. 
In such collisions, precious time is wasted, energies are misapplied, ministers are diverted from their proper work, the souls of people suffer, and a church's victory often proves only one degree better than a defeat, end quote. So true. So true. And so these evil schemers know what's know what mixing in God with politics in this kind of way will do. They know what they're doing. Now notice fourth, the perceptive answer. The perceptive answer. The Lord knows what they're doing. First notice that in His perceptive answer, Jesus exposes their evil motives in verse 15. Notice. But He, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing Me? The parallel passage of Matthew twenty two eighteen records, But Jesus perceived their malice. He knew, in other words, their wickedness. Yes, He was 100% man, but Jesus was 100% God. So He knew their hearts. John 2.25 says that Jesus knew what was in man. Therefore, He wasn't entrusting Himself to human beings, to men, because He knew what was in their hearts. And so Jesus knows their evil intent, that they are pretenders, that they are two-faced individuals, that they're just testing him. The fact is that these guys were already paying taxes as a matter of convenience and expediency, weren't they? They were already doing this. They were already complying. They're just trying to pick a fight with Jesus. They're coming with honest motives. Jesus calls them out. Second, notice the manner in which he answers them. He said to them at the end of verse 15, Bring me a denarius to look at. Jesus, have you never seen one of these? What do you guys think? Of course he had. Jesus knows what this looks like. This little small silver coin weighing no more than three to four grams. Jesus knows what it looks like. He wants to take this coin and to illustrate a point, a truth to these individuals. Now, at this point, we need to pause. And you need to recognize the moment and feel the moment. Understand what is happening here. Before him are his enemies who couldn't be more different than one another. They have been sent by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin maybe is around there or they are very much tuned in to how this interaction is going to take place because they've sent the Jewish Supreme Court, if you will, has sent these individuals. The enemies are right there. His disciples are watching Jesus yet again in another encounter. They know that this is a lightning rod issue that can get him into trouble. Then you have the masses, the multitudes who are there listening to this interaction. And they understand what's at stake here. And then you have some Romans around. And potentially some Roman soldiers who are patrolling that area. And they're seeing, they're, they're already tuned in to Jesus' life even in Jerusalem. His entrance into Jerusalem. So the Roman soldiers are even watching this thing unfold. You can feel the tension in the air, right? You could cut it with a knife. This is the issue of the day. That could get Jesus into trouble. And everybody knows what's at stake here, no matter how Jesus answers. So what's he going to do? How's he going to answer? Look at verse 16. They brought one. They brought a denarius. 
And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? You can imagine Jesus holding up that little coin. Folks, whose picture is on this? And who is the wording describing or pointing to? They know what it looked like. They know the answer. Jesus wants his enemies to articulate the obvious self-evident answer, doesn't he? Verse 16, and they said to him, Caesar's. They're right. And here's the punchline. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Boy, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this passage quoted verbatim or alluded to by both sides, if you will, both extremes, those who are super pro-government supporters and also by those who are anti-government. Both use this text right here, Jesus' words here, to support their position in some way, shape, or form. And I've talked to a lot of pastors and leaders whose sheep many of whom have left or those who are still at their churches who've used this text to basically support their positions. What Jesus is saying here is this. Here's this physical silver coin with the image of a physical earthly emperor. Give Caesar what belongs to him that's on that coin. They were Roman citizens bound to the laws of the land. They had certain rights and privileges given to them as Roman citizens. They had certain responsibilities as Roman citizens that they needed to pay to their government. And that would include taxes. Oh, pastor, I don't really like where this message is headed right now. <laughs> yes, it is absolutely necessary and mandated from us as believers, whether you agree or disagree with all that is going on in our government, beloved, for you to do what? To pay your taxes. And I'm just telling you this right now because I was reading some stuff this week. There are all kinds of people, even some believers, saying things like, you know, I don't think this time around I need to pay taxes because I am fully in disagreement of what the government is doing. Why should I pay taxes? Nice one. Nice one. Or complaining about taxes. Or perhaps even justifying um, being corrupt in their, in, in their handling of their taxes. Being dishonest because they disagree with the government. No, we don't get an out. Part of submission to our government, whether we agree with everything or not, is that we would fulfill our responsibility and pay our taxes in an honest way, right? Especially as believers. Now, what we have here in seed form is the New Testament teaching about the Christian's responsibility to the civil government. That's what we have here. And mark it. Hear me out. Because I, myself, have sought every possible way, given what we've been navigating in the last year, to somehow weasel myself out of this in some way, shape, or form, my government responsibilities, and I have not found an out. This was given, and the passages we're going to look at, these instructions were given to people who were citizens, including believers, who were citizens of a wicked Roman government. I have read so much first century historical material on the Roman Empire. 
and leading into the first century and post-first century New Testament times. And you know what kind of government the Roman government was? It had its share of corruption, idolatry, and pantheism. The Romans would take, would take you in, conquer you, and take you in as one of their citizens as, and, and allow you to keep your gods. And you know what? You worship your, your gods, we'll worship, um, worship our gods, we'll worship your gods. It was a pantheistic government. It was tyrannical. The Roman government had its share of injustices and immorality. Infamous are the stories of the Herods and all kinds of Roman rulers and emperors who were so corrupt and so immoral that I cannot even mention the types of things that they would do and lead their people into doing under the Roman Empire. That's the government that Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Right there. Because submission does not equal agreement, does it? Uh, submission does not equal agreement. Nor does submission equal that we mean that we are an accomplice to a corrupt government when we, in obedience to God, submit ourselves well without violating Scripture under our government. Submission does not equal agreement or that, or that we are an accomplice to a corrupt government when we obey our government. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 13, okay? Romans 13. Because Paul later on builds in the New Testament church on what Jesus says here. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. And what I want you to notice before I even begin to read verse 1 is that this, these instructions, including submission to government, are given on the heels of God's tender pities, mercies, the grace of the gospel being extended to these Roman Christians. They are kingdom citizens, in other words. And so as kingdom citizens, as those who now put on the lenses of the gospel as they live on mission on this earth, how are we to conduct ourselves as believers? Verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. That word subjection there has the idea of, of voluntary, joyful, willing, arranging ourselves under our governing authorities. It's a choice that we make. Not because we agree on everything. For there is no authority, verse 1, except from God, and those which exist are established by God. God is the source of all authority, he says, and he's sovereign over all authority, even corrupt government, beloved. Yes. Therefore, verse 2, whoever resists authority, literally those who arrange themselves against authority, have opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Verse 3, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. In other words, authority is a deterrent to evil when exercised rightly. Verse 4, For it is a minister of God for you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it, meaning government, does not bear the sword for nothing. 
For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. In other words, not just for fear of punishment, we should submit, but as unto God. Because he's the source and he's sovereign over all authority, right? Verse 6, for because of this, oh no, pastor, I didn't like that verse. I thought you were going to stop at verse 5. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? It's an amplification and an expansion of Jesus' words in Mark chapter 12. Even giving more meat and flesh to this. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, over to your right. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. Notice again, every word in God's word is important, isn't it? Look at the way that he, how he refers to them, beloved. Beloved. They are Christians, beloved of God in Christ Jesus, right? Beloved, 1 Peter 2, 11. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Beloved, never, ever, ever forget that you are an alien and a stranger as a believer on this earth. Just passing by. Just passing by. Too many of us are so focused on the empire that is America and the U.S., not enough focused on the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, right? But... As those who are of a heavenly kingdom, we are on mission. Look at verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, the non-Christian world in this context, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And I take that in the day of visitation in the best view as a time when they will glorify Christ because they will get saved and God will use your testimony and obviously the content of the gospel as a means to save those individuals. The day of their visitation when they will glorify God. It's an evangelistic witness. How might we be Faithful witnesses, look at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. And then listen to this. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Sound familiar? Just, again, an expansion, uh, giving substance to Jesus' words. Back in Mark chapter 12. Now watch this. Who is the ultimate example? We might look at this, these passages and say, but it's really hard. And it is. But it's really difficult, and it is. There are a lot of injustices, and they are. There's a lot of mistreatment, and a lot of partiality, and a lot of inconsistency, and there is. Amen? We've seen it. 
We can be honest about that. But who was the ultimate example of one who we could look to and say, wow, look, at he is the great trailblazer of submitting himself under a corrupt government. What's his name? Jesus. Look at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, Christian, beloved. Since Christ also suffered for you, you think you're suffering? Look at Jesus. He left you an example for you to follow in his steps. You, you want to talk about injustice? Look at verse 22. Who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. You want to talk about mistreatment? Verse 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But what is it that kept Jesus in the power of the Spirit as fully God and fully man? Enduring, he kept entrusting himself. To him, to his heavenly father who judges righteously. To the God of all authority. Because not only is God the source of authority, but he's sovereign over it all. Who lived that in his life perfectly? It was the God man, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's him. And then look at verse 24. Here's the gospel. Here's the good news. And he himself, emphatically, by the way, anytime you see that in the English, he himself, that's emphatic, exclusively, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross, the ultimate symbol of ridicule in that day of embarrassment, reserved for the lowest of the lows. Jesus, the great sin bearer who died on the cross and had the wrath of God poured upon him for our sins, for our transgressions. Why middle of verse 24? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This is gospel submission, beloved. That's what we're talking about. Modeled by our Lord Jesus, and we are called to walk in his steps. Amen? We're called to walk in his steps. Go back to Mark chapter 12. What our Lord is saying is you have a God-given responsibility to government. You live on earth. You derive certain benefits from the civil government. You are to fulfill your God-given duties. Why? Because the government is always just. Because they're they're always impartial. They're always righteous. Absolutely not. Because your submission is unto God. That's why. As an act of worship and devotion to Him. And so to our Lord, it's not an either or. It's a both and. And all it takes is God-given wisdom to continue to discern, even in our present times, to make it application to us. It takes God-given wisdom and partnership with each other and the principles of the Word of God and really being a student of the culture around us to discern how God wants us to move forward and tread carefully in a way that honors and glorifies Him first and foremost and that is beneficial for one another. Amen? Tough stuff, isn't it? Yes. Tough to swallow with a corrupt government? Yes. But this is Jesus, brothers and sisters. Jesus has the final word. Even if we don't fully agree with all that's going on. So, short of the government asking us to disobey the word of God, we are called to live well under what we're being asked to do. 
Short of the government asking us to refrain from doing something Scripture has called us to do, we are called to live well under what we're being asked to do. In other words, unless our government is asking us to perform sins of omission or sins of commission, we must give glory to God and be a faithful witness in the way that we walk this life. Amen? In that particular area of Christ honoring submission unto the Lord. And beloved, rather than complaining, rather than constantly bickering and vocalizing our displeasure, let us go to the one who can make a difference and be praying for our government, right? First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Read that text and meditate upon it. It's an evangelistic witness. We are to be praying for all men and women, and especially for kings and all who are in authority. Leading a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Why? For redemption's sake. It's a gospel-motivated submission where we put on the lenses of the gospel of Jesus and now our perspective and our outlook changes completely, doesn't it? We don't address and approach and speak into the issues of society the way that the non-believing world that doesn't have the gospel and that doesn't have Jesus or his example does. It's a gospel-motivated witness and submission. Now watch this. Watch this. There may be for us what is the American empire, if you will, but there is a greater kingdom, as I mentioned, right? Not of this world. A kingdom that we bow to, and that is the kingdom of God. Here is our greater responsibility. Look at verse 17. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. Remember, what Jesus is saying is fulfill your responsibility to government. But here it is. Remember that God requires something greater of you, and that is your wholehearted worship. He wants you. Here they are focusing on a, on a coin stamped with the earthly image of Caesar in an effort to kill Jesus, all the while ignoring the very image of God that God has stamped upon their very own hearts. Genesis 1.27, we were created in the image of God. He made us for himself. All creatures, all human beings are created in God's image. By all creatures, I mean all humans. The church father Tertullian wrote this, quote, Render unto Caesar the image of Caesar, which is on the money, and unto God the image of God, which is in man, so that thou givest unto Caesar money, and unto God thine own self. End quote. That's good stuff, isn't it? You see, ultimately, what this is, this is an evangelistic call to them and to you who have not given God your everything, creature of God. That's what this is. That's an evangelistic call. Give God what belongs to Him. Give God what belongs to Him this morning. What is that? Yourself. You. Wholehearted worship. Do you remember when Jesus was asked in Matthew twenty-two thirty-eight? Teacher, what is the great and foremost commandment? Do you remember what Jesus answered? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Love God with everything, the material and the immaterial, the physical and the spiritual. That was a quote from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. What does Jesus want in the Old Testament? What does Jesus want in the New Testament? What does Jesus want as far along as he tarries? What does he want? Wholehearted devotion to him. He wants you. Give God what belongs to him this morning. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that you are to offer yourself as a living and holy sacrifice to God. You say, well, that's for Christians only. Yes, it is first and foremost, but it's a standard for everyone. And the non-believer needs to realize that they cannot offer themselves this way. It all begins with trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So that they could live this way in wholehearted devotion to him. You are to give God your desires. You are to give God your affections. You are to give God your priorities, your energy, your resources, your possessions, your money, your school, your education, your business. Even your family doesn't belong to you. It belongs, they belong to God. They are stewardship from God. Give God what belongs to him this morning. Listen to me, whether you acknowledge him or not, God owns you. God owns you. He created you for himself that you might glorify him and enjoy him now and forevermore. Stop stealing from God. Stop taking what is rightfully God's. Namely, all of you. It was Augustine who once wrote, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Boy, that sums it up, doesn't it? People can spend their whole lives pursuing respect in the eyes of the world, immorality, self-indulgence, moralism as a way to gain favor before God, which doesn't save riches, possessions, materialism. You can spend your whole life pursuing the American dream, listen to me, and die unhappy. Why? Because God has made you for himself. Give God what belongs to him, namely all of you. All of you. We were made for him. This is what makes the gospel so attractive, so beautiful, doesn't it? God sent his son Jesus into the world both to die for our sins, pay for our sins, rise from the dead to begin the process of restoring the fullness of the image of God in us so that we would live out our purpose to glorify God and enjoy him now and forevermore. Listen, if this is not you this morning, this is where it begins Your holy and good creator has sent his son Jesus into the world to to live the perfect life that you could never live. To die, to pay for your personal sins, to rise from the dead, conquering sin and death. There is good news. That is good news for those who are the worst of sinners, which would include all of us, right? There's forgiveness. There's reconciliation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in the good news of Jesus today. Begin to live out the purpose for which you were created. Give God what belongs to him. Today is the day of salvation if you don't know Christ. Today is the day for new life. Today you can be born again. You can be rescued from hell and condemnation. Put your faith in Christ. What are you waiting for? What will it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Answer, nothing. Nothing. But those who trust in Christ, 
God will never be ashamed of you. You will no longer be under condemnation. You will be a child of God. You will be forgiven, reconciled to your creator, uh, receive eternal life. Wow. Why choose the temporary passing pleasures of sin when you can have the eternal riches in the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen? So creature of God, give to God what belongs to him. Give him yourself. Notice last, the superficial reaction in verse 17 says that they were amazed at him. And at first glance, we might think, oh, what a great response. Maybe this was a revival and many people believed in Jesus. Not so. It was superficial. Because even though they marvel at Jesus' amazing wisdom, they don't believe in him. Many of these people are going to be some of the same people supporting and cheering on his death just a few days later, right? Superficial amazement doesn't save anybody. Sadly, for so many of you, you've been around the church for so long. You've heard the truth. You've attended church after church after church. You've heard the word of Christ. You've heard the gospel repeatedly. You've served. You've even profited from some of the church's ministries, whether this one or others. But you've never really believed in your heart. You've never really personalized the fact that Jesus on the cross didn't just die for the, thing, for the sins of the world. He died for your personal sins. Your sinful thoughts, your sinful motivations, your sinful words, your sinful actions, your misguided and misdirected priorities. You have not loved the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly every second of your existence. If you're that person, raise your hand so that we can confront you after if you've done that, right? None of us have. We are by nature sinners and children of wrath, and we flesh that out in the way that we live, and that we never truly love God perfectly with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thus, we need salvation from our sins. Trust in Christ today. Give God what belongs to Him, namely yourself, your whole heart. Listen to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which asks this, What is the chief end of man? Boil it down for me. What is the ultimate purpose of man? Why are we here for? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I love that. Enjoy Him and forever in this life and forevermore. Amen? That today be the day when you give to God what belongs to Him. And you begin to live wholeheartedly for Him. Let's pray. Father God, we experience the tension this past year. It is very real. Of wanting above all to be obedient to you, to offer to you wholehearted worship and obedience. And yet at the same time, such unique times in the past year especially, Father. We've needed so much wisdom and understanding and we've fallen on our faces many a time trying to discern your will for how we should walk circumspectly and in a way that glorifies you in the midst of so much corruption and hatred and hostility. Father, especially this week, we thank you so much for Passion Week. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the forgiveness that we can find in Jesus Christ so that no matter what we are experiencing in our country and in our world, Lord, the risen, exalted Christ is returning. Thank you for our great hope. And I pray that we would be people on mission as long as you would have us here, telling others about this good news of forgiveness of sins found in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray this morning.
that today would be the day of salvation for some here. That today would be the day when they would turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ. That today would be the day where they would give to you what belongs to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.